It's time to take you behind the scenes a little bit at the CPA. Like, how does the sausage get made? Now really, today's topic just gave me an excuse to hang out for a bit with one of my colleagues. I'm Eric Bowman, the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. One of the things the CPA does day in and day out is advocate for psychological science and policy changes at all levels of government. Here on Mindful, I've spoken to many psychologists who are doing the same. And now to make that process easier, a how-to guide for advocacy has been created for our members by our Director of Policy and Public Affairs, who joins me to talk about that very thing today. Well, my name is Glenn Brimacombe. I'm the uh, Director of Policy and Public Affairs at the Canadian Psychological Association. I've been at the association for the past two years. I'm a trained health economist who is a recovering CEO as well. I was a CEO of two national health organizations for 17 years. I've been in the advocacy business since 1991, so 30 years I've been in the business. I've been a registered lobbyist for many years, very actively involved in figuring out how best to express the views of organizations and constituencies in the health uh, arena to positively impact public policy uh, in this country when it comes to healthcare. And so you've created an advocacy guide for members of the Canadian Psychological Association, and we'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to just start with basically defining advocacy. Uh, now, you're, you talked about pu public policy. Is advocacy solely confined to the realm of public policy? How is it different from activism? just so we know exactly what we're talking about when we say advocacy here. So advocacy isn't constrained to the public policy arena. Advocacy can be, you can advocate for anything. You could advocate, uh, you know, to your wife that you want spaghetti with meatballs for dinner tonight. Um, so, I mean, there's many different ways in which it can apply. I, but I mean, in the context in which we think about uh, advocacy and given the roles that we have, it's, pretty much in the context of the public policy arena, contributing to trying to shape, uh, perhaps influence how governments and other players uh, think about a particular policy issue. Now to your question about activism versus advocacy, my own personal view is there is a difference. I mean, the way I see and feel and kind of touch and taste activism, to me, it is more grassrootsy, it is more personal, um, it isn't uh, beholden to the process of advocacy and advocacy and the synonym is lobbying is very different because it is really a formal process of engagement in the context of public policy with governments. It's very much a welcomed and essential process uh, with regard to how we listen to each other, how we meet, how we exchange views, briefs, testify. Activism is um, more random in a sense and perhaps more demanding. It isn't beholden to the institutional norms uh, that really guide the process around advocacy. And perhaps activism is seen as being more militant as well, where there is an unwillingness to compromise on a particular issue. You can think of whether it's climate change as, and that's a great example, uh, even abortion. Uh, would be another issue where the views are very um, deeply held and unwilling to really move, to, notwithstanding whether it's ideology or the evidence that's getting in the way of a particular view. So I see them as different 
Uh, I mean, they're related, of course, because they're both looking to influence and change, whether it's a government's view or an organization's view or anywhere in between or outside of those two poles. I just told you, uh, you know, before we started this interview that I threw my back out. So I'm moving around in a walker in my house here and I have a hard time making food for myself. So yesterday I advocated for a fried ham sandwich on a bagel and it didn't go over well. I'm obviously not very good at this advocacy thing yet. You have 30 years in the business. So I'm hoping you can give me some real world examples of where advocacy has affected positive change in specifically the realm of healthcare and mental health care. Yeah, no, I, I, and as we go through, I'm happy to do that. I mean, that's one of the nice things uh, through my career. There are moments in time I can plant a flag knowing that I've contributed to some thinking around how the system has evolved. One example would be when I was at the Canadian Medical Association, we had put together a proposal to Health Canada that documented and created an index with regard to the amount of medical equipment we had in this country. That ultimately led to the first uh, tranche of funding from the federal government to the provinces of $1.75 billion. And the whole idea was to expand, whether it was MRIs, uh, positon, positron, positon emission tomographers, <laughs> excuse me, known as PET scanners, um, and other pieces of medical equipment uh, and the whole idea there was, again, because the system did not have adequate capacity in terms of technology, there was an opportunity for the federal government, knowing its stewardship supportive role to the provinces and territories, to put some dedicated targeted money to expand capacity. Now, we're talking about advocacy in this, in this particular sense, uh, in the realm of psychology and psychologists who can advocate for various things. And a lot of the time when I speak to psychologists, especially academics, they talk about knowledge mobilization, right? They've done a study, they've come up with a whole pile of data. The data suggests, hey, this might be the direction we should go in. We should use this data to inform public policy. The next step, I presume then, would actually be advocacy, taking that data to a member of parliament, to your local MPP. And this is one of the things that you're creating the template for. What do you think psychologists specifically can bring to that discussion on a larger national, provincial, even municipal level? Psychologists bring perspective, um, both their own professionally in terms of practice and their patients. They are healthcare providers and when they walk the halls of power, people listen. And that's one of the things that I have found through you know, many meetings that I have attended. When providers speak, um, policymakers listen. And particularly just knowing how important mental health is these days for a whole host of reasons, whether it's improving access or just uh, making sure that people are productive workers moving back into uh, an office environment. Um, there are real opportunities when psychologists speak for themselves, they can have a significant impact on, on moving the policy dialogue in a particular area when it comes to, in this case, to mental health. So they are their own best advocates. A lot of what I do is making sure that I'm preparing the profession to speak uh, clearly, articulately, speaking to the issues and to the challenges, because as much as we have solutions that we offer in terms of improving the system, there is always counter arguments and counterpoints of view as to 
other options that could be pursued. So as much as we may be offering a particular view, whether it's the Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Program, that's a pilot project that's being funded by the provincial government, there might be other views on the table that would say, you know, we think we should take the system in a slightly different direction. So you need to be able to bring the art and science of advocacy together. So the art piece is the timing and the opportunity. And to some degree, the preparedness, the science piece is the evidence. So speaking eloquently, articulately, and I would say pithy, pithily, yes. <laughs> uh, to the evidence so that policymakers can understand what you're saying. And you're saying it in a very credible fashion. So that becomes equally important. And the profession brings that. I mean, it has a significant amount of gravitas because of who they are and what they do. Now you talk about counter arguments and there might be another way of doing things and somebody else is advocating for something different. Uh, and you also mentioned, you know, activism being a little more rigid than advocacy. How rigid are you, would you suggest that somebody be when they're advocating for a particular cause? What type of compromise? I mean, is that something that you can think about in advance before you go and present your case? Absolutely. And I mean, generally speaking, if you're, you're getting to the, the short strokes with regard to the policy paths or the options that a government is pursuing, generally speaking, you should be thinking about at least a plan A and a plan B. Uh, if not a plan C, because there might be other paths that they are contemplating that they will maybe not propose to you, but walk you through to get a reaction out of you. So um, you, you can have a preferred view as to what you would like to see happen. Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. So you need to make sure that you have that kind of flexibility in your thinking as to what a separate option or a different option might mean to you and whether you're prepared to live with it in the court of public opinion. Because governments are looking, will know that you will be reacting at some point, likely publicly, as to what they're proposing in terms of a path forward. And you also mentioned that, uh, you know, now is a time when mental health is part of the public policy discussion. And so it's a good time, I presume, to advocate for mental health related uh, causes. Is now the best time? I mean, the public discussion around mental health due to the pandemic is probably larger than we've ever seen it before. Uh, when the pandemic eventually ends, and we presume and hope that it does, uh, is the moment past, is now the time. For me, the corollary is when no one is talking about your issue of importance, uh, how is important is it for government to actually move? And right now, of course, the opposite is true, that mental health is very much part of many different conversations with regard to whether it's COVID-19 or just the whole notion of wait times and extended and, and long wait times for those that are suffering from mental illness that they can't gain access to mental health professionals in the system. So knowing that you bring it all together, there's tremendous momentum, focus, uh, a spotlight is clearly on um, the importance of uh, investing in mental health. You have commitment from the Liberal government, the newly formed Liberal government of four and a half billion dollars through a Canadian mental health transfer over the next five years. That is significant. It's also significant the fact that all three sitting national political parties all made uh, significant commitments in their platforms in leading to up to the September 20th uh, federal election. That's historic in my view. It's never happened before when you've seen 
uh, everything come together in the sense of all parties literally being on the same page and recognizing this as a public policy priority that needs to be addressed now. So the window is open. Uh, there are opportunities. Of course, uh, we have been part of the dialogue with all three parties as to what we think is best. We've also been aligned in strategic alliance uh, through the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health to make sure that there is a, a breadth of our voice, that it is wider, deeper, and stronger. So governments um, can't look away. They cannot not afford to pay attention to what the national mental health community is saying. And uh, the last point I'd make is just look at the fact as to where you have um, major athletes coming out and speak, speaking about mental illness in the last couple of months. You know, Carrie Price, right. Simone Biles. Naomi uh, Osaka. That, that's right, Naomi Osaka. These are, you know, moments um, where 20 years ago, not even 10 years ago, this would never have happened. So the whole notion of education, um, information sharing, uh, destigmatization of mental illness and allowing people to feel comfortable to talk about in a public space about mental health, just as they would about a broken arm or any other physical ailment, you know, is significant. And hopefully the leveling of the playing field in the sense in terms of how people are thinking about talking about these issues will lead to a leveling of the playing field in terms of funding opportunities and more importantly, just the overall architecture of the mental health system in this country. Now, when you talk about destigmatizing these issues and the athletes who have come out, Calvin Ridley's another example, uh, just left the Atlanta Falcons uh, for mental health reasons. I think of that more in a media sense than in a political sense. And I know that some of what your advocacy guide is talking about is writing an op-ed, for example. And, uh, you know, when would you suggest that you go talk to your MPP? When would you suggest you write an op-ed? So my sense is that one size does not fit all. Uh, individual circumstances will dictate individual strategies as to whether you want to lead with meetings and then an op-ed or the reverse in the sense of engaging the public through media and then having private meetings or moving with both at the same time. So it really goes back to what are your strategic objectives? What are you trying to achieve? If you're just trying to sound out members of parliament on a particular issue and whether they're champions or whether there are landmines that you need to be aware of as you uh, further develop a more detailed proposal then probably having private meetings with MPs is the way to go. If you're at a point where you have a, a mature proposal that has had feedback, has some momentum within uh, the sector, you may want to think about how you broaden and engage the public. And that's where op-eds can be very valuable. I, I mean, we've recently, as you know, we had an op-ed in the Hill Times talking about mental health parity and also our CEO, Dr. Karen Cohen, talking about accessibility through the lens of psychology. These are opportunities because the dialogue is already out there, but it's really about trying to engender and focus uh, public support in a, in a couple of particular areas. One around mental health parity in the sense of additional funding dedicated for mental health and substance use health. And the other one really focus on how we also improve system, this, the, the overall mental health delivery system to improve access for Canadians and also through psychologists. Now, last episode, I was just talking to a psychiatrist from UBC who specializes in suicidology. And he was saying that he got drawn into this 
advocacy role, specifically a role with Science Up First, combating online disinformation, uh, because he saw so many politicians, media outlets, and so on, talking about the rampant rise in suicide that was going to come about as a result of lockdowns. And he said to himself, well, as an expert, I really need to weigh in and say that's probably not the case. This is, you know, fear mongering and it shouldn't be, the, uh, it shouldn't be done this way. Uh, and then he was telling me about the incredible backlash he received. Of course, he turned out to be right. There's a substantial reduction in suicide rates, especially here in Canada. But the the polarization, both in the political arena and in the public and in the media, now may be the time to talk about mental health and to advocate for it. But is it more difficult because of that polarization? I would say not at all. Uh, and I go back to the CSI approach to following the evidence. And that's uh, what you need to do when it comes to, especially when it, you're talking about um, developing or modifying the mental health delivery system. So as much as people are out there talking about, and there's very polarized views perhaps around mental health and the role of psychiatry, psychology, the inside baseball game, there is a smaller community that is based on the evidence with regard to how you're moving, so to speak, the chess pieces around the mental health system delivery board. So while there are different views, there is certainly a consensus about the need to invest in a couple of key areas. Certainly primary health care would be one and an expanded role for psychology. And that's already happening happening in several provinces right now. So I don't think the dissonance, the amplitude of the polarization when it comes to health system policy discussion is as nearly as wide as it is you know, around public discussion about mental health. You go and you advocate, uh, you talk to your provincial government, your federal government, you help them design the policy, you help them make these changes. And then another election comes and it's a whole different government that goes in and everything changes all over again. Is that frustrating or is that a new opportunity to you know, advocate for something else, for more, for something better? I'm thinking right now about you know, Ontario, uh, government changes and the, they decide to do away with the LINs. And okay, that fundamentally changes the healthcare system in the province or Manitoba where they have the bill in place that's going to fundamentally change the entire way their education system is working right now. I, I can't imagine that not being frustrating for somebody who has advocated and helped create the policy that they think is working and then have it all done away with. No, that's a very good question. And I would say it can be both. Uh, it can be very frustrating knowing that um, a new government is coming into play and has a very different view as to how they want to structure the healthcare system. Uh, saying that, the question is, uh, once you better understand where they're going, where the puck is going, so to speak, and how you can align with them, there are opportunities to, potential opportunities, to try and shape their thinking. So as much as, for example, the Ontario government did away with the LINs, they introduced a center of excellence for mental health and addictions. So from the ashes of one move away and one change in policy, uh, there has been something that has risen upon which can be built on. And certainly from a mental health and addictions point of view, maybe the center, again, is relatively new. It's somewhat nascent still, but there are opportunities to take that structure, given that it's focused very much on mental health and addiction services in Ontario, it's very different than the LINs that had no real, I mean, they had a broad mandate. So they weren't necessarily solely focused on one particular 
sector of the system the way that the center of excellence is. So yes, it can be frustrating, but the question is, you know, how do you how do you create a silk purse from a you know a sow's ear? You have to think creatively and um, strategically as to how you can get from kind of one one place to another, knowing that there's a new sheriff in town. Now, does using terminology like silk purse and cow's ear from the 1950s help uh, with many of these lawmakers being older? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I've never really used that cliche or turn of the phrase um, <laughs> with them. Um, you know, I don't know if age is a factor. Just given the, the number of conversations that I have had in a meeting with members of parliament through the years uh, have exponentially increased around mental health. And when I worked for the Psychiatric Association, it was not unusual to have members of parliament ask for a private moment of time with the psychiatrist who I was meeting with them with to have a, a quick conversation on a mental health issue. So I, I don't see age being the issue. Uh, because I think we're all getting there around the importance, whether you're a grandfather and it's your daughter or grandson that's suffering from anxiety or depression, or whether you're in your 20s and you're experiencing anxiety yourself. I think we are all getting there for all of the right reasons, just in terms of the degree to which the openness has allowed us, the destigmatization, the education, and, and just the information that we're sharing with people about the importance around performance and just overall self-fulfillment and being able to reach your potential as a Canadian and contribute whether it's through a you know a charity or whether you're working for a fortune 500 co uh, company. I know that you know you put together a document for our members and for the public really to talk about mental health issues and the platforms from the three major political parties in this past federal election. Would getting in prior to the election and the creation of those platforms be more effective in some ways in shaping future policy in the sense that the platforms created, then a party gets elected, then they have to implement that platform. Is it easier to get in ahead of time or after the fact, once you know who that party is and you can focus all of your efforts on that one particular platform? So my view would be it's always better to get in early and try and shape uh, the platform as it is in development and discussion within each political party. And that is something that we've done. I mean, through the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health, the Canadian Psychological Association on its own has had a broad array of conversations well in advance of the federal election that talked about the importance of the federal government uh, investing in mental health creating a mental health transfer, recognizing the importance of parity between mental health and physical health, the importance of investing in psychological research and mental health research, the need for a far more comprehensive array of mental health system performance indicators. These are issues that we've been pushing for the last couple of years, quite frankly. So I'm hoping that they culminate, not only because of our conversations um, within the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party or the NDP, but because we have had a voice, and again, it's been a, a wider, deeper, stronger voice that has grown with momentum and with a lot of people agreeing with what we're saying. You have to, you know, walk a fairly diplomatic line, I imagine. Uh, you can't show preference to one party over another. Do you vote? Do I vote? Yeah, I know a Certainly. lot of people in your uh, in your 
position who can't publicly show any preference will privately right. also abstain from the process for that very reason. No, no, I do not uh, abstain from the political process. I mean, I'm a participant by virtue of what I do in my professional daily life. And I'm active as a Canadian who has every right. So no, I don't feel that I should remove myself. I can tell you, I've never joined a, a political party. I've always stayed away from the partisan political process. I am ecumenical in terms of how we approach every political party. And, and at the end of the day, what CPA is about is good public policy when it comes to mental health and substance use health. And uh, we are prepared to dance with all political parties to do the right thing that is in the best interest of Canadians, not because of any particular color or ideology or view that they're holding. Ecumenical. I think that's the second best word you've used in this interview, next to pithily, which I truly enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do you go from here? What are your next uh, big advocacy project plans? What are you, what are you fighting for next? Well, it, it's, I guess, an extension of what we are currently talking about. And it's in the context of now that we have the inaugural Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Dr. Carolyn Bennett, very excited to hear that. Dr. Bennett, family physician from Ontario, understands the issues, lived these issues around treating individuals with mental health and substance use health conditions. There is an opportunity uh, to work with a minister who really understands from the ground up uh, how to move forward. And given the commitments that the Liberal Party has made around investing in mental health uh, and substance use health, we are looking to work with them to help them bring their promises to life. And of course, a big piece of it is how we can work with the provinces and territories because a big chunk of the money that has been promised will be transferred to the provinces and, and territories in terms of their stewardship role. The other piece though, just coming back to ecumenical, is it really becomes important in this minority government to also look at all parliamentarians. And it adds a level of complexity because there are more moving pieces in terms of the conversations that we are likely to have, uh, knowing that the NDP and Conservatives will play a role in the context of um, democracy in the House and as to how policy will be set uh, to some degree as to how the Liberals will want to move forward on the mental health and substance use health files. I expect so. And I think, yeah, I think it's a very interesting development and pretty exciting. Uh, all right, I got one more question for you. And this one's a little more personal. With COVID, been a year and a half, are you still jamming with the band? Are you still playing music? <laughs> Do you miss it if you're not? We are playing. And uh, just last night, I mean, we get together every Tuesday night for three hours and just go through our set lists refine it, fine-tune. We played live uh, publicly uh, in September as part of the Community Addiction Peer Support Association's Recovery Day. We were on the main stage right in front of the City Hall, uh, and we look forward. I mean, right now, gigs are far and few between because of COVID, um, but we look forward to the day when we are out playing at least a couple of months, a couple of times a month live. Uh, but right now, uh, you know, jamming, uh, uh, in our band leader's uh, basement, which is a studio, is worth its weight in gold. I mean, I am, you know, I'm ecstatic when I'm uh, playing the drums with the band. Oh, that's terrific. It's terrific to have a studio space. That's a big deal, especially right now. Indeed. And, all right. You played a mental health event. Do you get asked to play mental health events a lot because people know you and they go, oh, Glenn has a band. Maybe he'll play for us. Is that the kind of thing that happens a lot? 
It doesn't happen a lot. It does happen. Uh, but it, it's really, uh, we're, I guess, accessible to a wider audience and just a wider array of contacts. So we play weddings, we play private uh, events that people want to have, whether it's a birthday or someone turning 50 or, you know, it's an organization that's having its annual ball. So there are, but there are, have been mental health organizations and health organizations because of my I guess my 30 odd years in the mental health and health space that have approached us because they know that uh, I really want to be a rocker and not a health economist. <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, I really <laughs> wanted to play shortstop for the Red Sox. It turns out I'm not good enough, but that was my that was my hope. And I still hold out hope that one day, you know, I'll... Uh... Well, you kind, of, you kind of look like Rick Burleson, so I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. All right. Thanks so much, Glenn. Uh, this was great and uh, some terrific information. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, taking the time. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Glenn Brimacombe, the CPA's Director of Policy and Public Affairs, who has created an advocacy guide for our membership so that psychologists across Canada continue this important work. Members can also find a working with the media guide created by me and our team. Mindful is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Eric Bowman. I'd love to leave you with a track from Glenn's band, Starfire, but the only YouTube videos I could find were covers, and I don't know about licensing, that kind of thing, and it feels like something that could get us shut down. So, our theme music remains Avenues by David Taylor. <laughs>